I love to see, especially in the summer, a church family just so active in discipleship and meaningful, meaningful stuff. There's going to be a verse on the screen. Um, it's kind of the, the foundational verse, the rock-solid verse of this rock-solid sermon series we have on the God of the Psalms. And so we want to keep this verse in front of us. And so I want you to actually say this with me kind of liturgically. Let's read this together. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You know, I encourage you to to consider memorizing that this summer. As we go through this 13-week series on the God of the Psalms, and, and the Psalms beautifully unpack so many different human emotions, I love that line, lead me to the rock. How many of you need something rock solid in your life? <laughs> yeah, we all do. Um, in December of 08 and January of 09, um, my wife and I were in Israel visiting uh, some family that lived there and still does live there. Um, and we were doing the tour around all the, the great sites and the experiences and all that kind of stuff. But man, I'll tell you one thing that really stuck out to me was how Israel is under a state of constant threat. It is absolutely normal for soldiers to walk around just constantly carrying assault rifles. And we saw tanks on a- in action and fighter jets flying over, and they were not running training missions. They were on mission, on a cause. Um, and, and I don't want to get into a political or a scatological tangent here, but, but Israel, even today, even in our experience from a few years back, Israel is a place under constant threat. What does peace even mean in an environment like that? That's similar, I bring it up because it's similar to the situation of King David and the kingdom of Israel under his leadership. King David, he personally experienced constant threat on a very personal level. First, it started before he even assumed being a king from his predecessor, King Saul, constantly threatening him, never safe. From him. Then his own advisors, when he became king, some of his own advisors betrayed him and started advising his enemies like Ahithophel. And ultimately, even his own family, even his own son, Absalom, threatened him, rebelled against him. And then David's personal experience, it further represents the experience of the nation as a whole. They were under constant threat from the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Moabites. What does peace mean? When you're under constant threat, even look like. And our situation, your situation, my situation, it's, it's a lot different than that in many ways. But I bet many of us would agree, peace is hard to find, isn't it? Peace can be elusive. And we've all got very serious threats that we still deal with. Our culture, our reality is still a conflict written reality. You want to know how I know that? Just, just turn on Christian radio and start to count the number of songs that have to do with battles or victory. It's all over the place. And, and don't get mad at me. Many of them are good, and I know how relevant can, they can be, but there's sure a lot of them. And then, and then some do take the theology of God's ultimate victory and mess it up a bit as a claim for conquering every struggle that we're in, as if God's a warrior in a bottle that only fights our causes. Psalm 40, though, and the worship song that we're ultimately going to sing, it's kind of like the anti-battle song. 
It reminds us that, that God is victorious in such a way that is not in every exact battle that we face, we can declare victory. God is victorious over all of our circumstances, transcending all of our circumstances. In other words, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, God is victorious and a God of peace. Because more than peace being circumstantial, more than peace being the absence of conflict, if God promised you that, how is he living up to it? That's not what he promised. God did not promise you a conflict-free reality. Peace is not circumstantial. It's a person. Let me say that again. Peace isn't circumstantial. Peace is a person. In Psalm 40, this, this song, this poem where David is crying out to the Lord, revealing his heart, he ends the psalm with this, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. And he starts the psalm saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. And in a bit, we're going to see what God has done and what God does but David's sense of peace, any sense of peace that David could get was not from his problems all being resolved. Because how did that happen for him? It didn't. David's life, David's reign was full of conflict at every turn. So we have to ask, then where did he find the God of peace? David's sense of peace surpasses his circumstances, because peace isn't circumstantial. It's a person. And if it hasn't been clear to you yet about the life of the Christian, let me make it clear. God does not promise us conflict-free realities. Jesus said the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. You will. In this world, you will have trouble. But I have overcome the world. I'm inviting you to a new kind of life, a new reality that overcomes your circumstances. Gideon built an altar and named it, the Lord is peace. When Isaiah proclaims the coming savior, he says, he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Paul says regularly in his letters, it's part of who he understands God to be in his letter to the Romans and Philippians and Corinthians and Thessalonians, God is the God of peace. Peace is not circumstantial. Peace is a person. How else could the Prince of Peace also be the one that crushes Satan under his foot? How could the Prince of Peace also be the suffering servant? How could the lion also be the lamb? How could the followers of this God of peace receive promises from him that we're going to endure persecution and rejection and spiritual warfare throughout our lives? Doesn't sound very peaceful to me. It's because while in this world we will have conflict, we are invited and ushered into a reality that surpasses our circumstances and our conflict, that has a peace that is true and real beyond all of that. Now, that can be hard to grasp, right? 
That can be hard for us to really sink our teeth into because you're, you and I have things like lunch scheduled later and, and we can feel that and smell that and taste that and go, well, I know that I'm going to have lunch later. That's a reality for me. But God being a, a God of peace that passes my circumstances, that's hard to touch, feel, right? There are a few things in life that have reminded me that the promises of faith are more real than I often give them credit for. When I go to funerals, I can tell you that the promises of faith are either real or they're not. They're either relevant and valuable or they're just cliche and gimmicky. No, at funerals, this is why the author of Ecclesiastes tells us that it is better to go to a funeral than a party, for it is in these times that we see what is really real. Most of our lives, in other words, we live for a false reality. Make no mistake, when I say that God is a peace that surpasses our circumstances, it's not just an overarching, cliche, good idea. It is tangible. It is real. And anything that tells us otherwise is either from our corrupted flesh and soul or straight from hell. Because our reality that God is peace is a real thing. Now, on the other hand, we can come to envisioning our peace as being too much in the here and now. In other words, God, I have this conflict. I have this situation. And if you don't resolve it within my timeline, I'm not sure your peace is really real. That, that makes peace circumstantial. And we've already talked about how peace isn't circumstantial. The promises of God that we read in Scripture, the stories that took days and years and generations to develop, we read in minutes. It doesn't mean that God isn't involved in our minutes. It just means that God is involved in our minutes and something way bigger than our lifetime. Oswald Chambers said it this way, God's aim looks like missing the mark because we are too short-sighted to see what he's aiming at. In a very real way that I'm not going to apologize for, the answer to the question of when will peace be experienced in our country? When will peace be experienced in Israel? When will peace be experienced in that relationship in my life? The answer to that is when there is truly and fully Jesus. It's not circumstances. It's submission and obedience and commitment to the God of peace. And we're not talking about a form of government or establishment of religion here. We're talking about personal lordship of Jesus. Peace is not a state of circumstances. It's a person. So as we turn to reading the first few verses of Psalm 40, we're going to see that peace is first founded on God's past deliverance, and then it's reflected forward. What I mean by that is, is that if you want to cultivate and stir and enter into, lean into peace in your life, where you start is by building the foundation. And the foundation starts by looking back and saying, where has God's faithfulness and deliverance been seen? That's what David does in Psalm 40. Here we go. I waited patiently for the Lord, he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust 
in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud to go who, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. David's reliance here upon the Lord as peace starts not with a resolution of his circumstances. We do not see David saying, you've cleared away all the problems, God. All of the battles that I fight in my life, you have won all of them. He says, no. It's who you are. It's what you've done. It's how you've acted in my life. You are faithful, completely, and steadfast. You inclined to me. That means you turned your face to me. We're going to get back to that face turning of God in a little bit. He heard me. He drew me up. He set my feet. He put a new song in me. The first act of developing or experiencing or leaning into peace is to look back on God's past deliverance, God's faithfulness. And throughout his word, over and over and over again, God tells his people, remember, remember, remember. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that the reason God says that over and over and over is because his people can tend to forget in stupid ways. I've, I've always thought, especially reading like about the Exodus and the whole situation there, man, I've thought the Israelites are idiots. Oh, I mean, you are standing here on the shoreline of the sea that God had just parted for you, allowed you, the whole nation of Israel, to go through out of Egypt and through a parted water reality. And then when your enemies followed, it crushed them. You have just seen that. You're standing on the other shoreline. And what do we hear the Israelites saying? God, what have you ever done for me? <laughs> when have you ever come through for me, God? It would have been better for me to be back in Egypt. And I sit there and I read that and I go, you are a bunch of idiots. You make me look good. Except the problem is then I look in the mirror spiritually and I go, uh-oh. I take the promises and the blessings of God for granted all the time. I act like God can't be trusted to know how my life should be prioritized. I'll get this and I'll let you know when I have questions. But if we train our souls to remember God's faithfulness, we're laying the foundation of experiencing the peace that passes understanding, that passes our circumstances. So peace is first founded or built upon looking back on God's past deliverance, and then it's reflected forward, and then it impacts how we act and we live. And that's what the rest of Psalm 40 is going to cover. We're going to read through it all. Verse 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have not spoken of your, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. 
As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. This poem, this psalm shows us that that David's reflection on peace forward, how he's supposed to live, transcends whatever circumstances he's going to go through. And in fact, it even transcends his own iniquities. Verse 12 talks about how David says, sometimes the greatest threat to my experience of peace isn't all of my enemies and an external threat. I've even made it worse. My own sin, my own iniquities, my waywardness from you, God. David faces, as we talked about in the beginning, relentless, ever-present conflict. And then as if that were not enough, his own iniquities make it worse. And he says, the balm, the medicine, the remedy is found by those who actively seek the Lord and are found to be glad in him. That leads us to our next point, that peace is experienced actively through commitment, obedience, and patience. I think many of us are used to a peace that is experienced passively, the kind of peace that just says, be still, sit there, and allow the peace to come upon you. And, and, and I think that active receiving of peace is definitely a good thing, a good spiritual posture. But, but like any good thing, there's also an extent to which being passive as a spiritual posture can decay over time. It can make us apathetic and inactive. And then the peace that was depended upon turns stale. There's a rhythm to the spiritual life that we first are to receive, but then we're supposed to do something with it. We are to be served and then go serve one another. We are to be recipients of grace and then go be grace givers. That's the rhythm. It's never supposed to stop in just a receiving posture. We're supposed to shine that forward, reflect that forward on our lives. And David's posture here, it's like an active pursuit of peace, a peace that's experienced through trust and commitment. Verse three, he talks about many will put their trust in the Lord. That's an active spiritual posture. And blessed is the person that makes the Lord his trust. And then in verse eight, I delight to do your will. Your, your word, your law is written on my heart. And whenever I see David preparing to obey the Lord like this, 
I think he's kind of course correcting, making sure he doesn't fall into the same spiritual rut as his predecessor. Maybe you know the story about King Saul, the first king of Israel, David's predecessor. He was a king of Israel, a king that the people had demanded. And and when he had acted spiritually, when the battle was upon him, he practiced the spiritual practices, the sacrifices and the offerings. But he did it on his terms, on his timeline. Trying to make sure he could manipulate the Lord to move how he needed him to move. Obedience to God is always on his terms, not on ours. If you and I find that we are half-heartedly following God, giving him part of our obedience, we're not really following him at all. We're trying to invite him into our life. Jesus talked about this. He said, whoever wants to reserve, retain, try to hold on to their life, you're going to lose it. You're not strong enough to control But if you surrender your life to me for my sake, that's when you find it. Mere sacrifice. This is why David said, mere sacrifice and offering the Lord has not required. Just going through the spiritual motions. And this applies to you and me. You might be sitting there going, I'm trying to go to church. I'm trying to practice spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible reading. But I see the circumstances in my life aren't changing at all. Going through the motions is not going to help us spiritually. We need to depend and rely on the Lord for his will in our life, for him to change us and do things by his strength. We've got to remind ourselves that God is faithful to be inclined to us, to hear us. But his response to our prayers may not be instant or easy or comfortable. But God is not faithful because of our circumstances. He's faithful and a God of peace because it's who he is. In light of David's grasp on God honoring obedience, God deferring obedience, and an example from his past with King Saul and how not to act, this is why he brings up in verse 6 this practice of sacrifice. Sacrifice is an example of what was needed to to pay for our iniquities and depend upon the Lord. Sacrifice here, it serves as a pointer, a big neon sign, a model, something that's actually called a type of Jesus. A type of Jesus. Biblically, I want to kind of just unpack this a little nerdy, but a little bit, uh, where it talks about things that are only but a shadow It's kind of like if you look at my shadow, it may represent what's real, but in and of itself, it's not real. Shadows represent, point to something, resemble something, but they're not the substance in and of themselves. And that's why I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. The author here, he's talking about how how sacrifices and the law and the practices, they point to something greater in Christ. Let's read this. And then we'll unpack it a little bit. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. 
Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. A shadow, a sacrifice, is representative of something that's real, that's substantive. In other words, our obedience to God is a good thing in and of itself. However, it's not enough in an action. It needs to represent the substance. It needs to be us leaning into intimacy and relationship with Jesus. Obedience and commitment and patience are cultivators of the peace of God but only if they're really reflective of hearts that are surrendering to his lordship, not if we're going through the motions. For those of you that are using our bonus resource or our our small group follow-up and connections, there's going to be more of biblical types for you to unpack in your small groups this week. I've said it before, I'm I'm not much of a bumper sticker, coffee mug, cute Christianese saying type of guy. And, and if you are, that's fine. It's just a little bit too sweet for my taste. But, but I also recognize in some of these things, man, there is profound truth. Check this one out. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. The peace that we're talking about here is not just an absence of conflict as we've talked about. It's shalom. Shalom. Shalom means completeness, wholeness, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, unity, harmony. If you can find any of that, In your life apart from Jesus, go for it. I release you. And of course, the reason I do that pastorally is you can't. It's like trying to run a truck motor on water. It's not built that way. Our world, our souls, were built to find shalom, completeness, wholeness, peace in Jesus and him alone. Know Jesus no peace. And even with all the complexities and conflicts of the world and the relationships around us, all of our conflicts are symptomatic of one thing. No Jesus, no shalom, no wholeness, no completeness. It's not possible. Long ago, God gave what is probably a familiar blessing directly to Moses and Aaron for them to proclaim over the people. He said this, the Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. How beautiful is that? You got Psalm 40 where where we hear the words that the Lord inclines to us. He turns to us. The Lord, sovereign God Almighty, hears your prayer and turns to you in this Jesus, foreshadowed all the way back in the Pentateuch, shows us that God looks upon you and looks upon me in favor. This is the gospel written all over, even all the way back to Moses, that that maybe you and I are sitting there going, well, I'm not so sure if God, all-knowing God, looks upon me how he is looking upon me in favor. I'm not deserving of that but it's because of the gospel. It's because for those that are in Christ, for you, for me, if we are in Christ, when God looks and turns his face upon John, what does he see? He sees Jesus. And he says, in you, I am well pleased. The face of God looks upon you, is inclined towards you today in favor. And it's not because you're good enough. It's because if you have accepted, embraced, allowed yourself to be in Christ, he looks upon his people in favor and brings us peace that transcends all understanding and all circumstances. Have you experienced the face shining of God? Him turning his countenance upon you. When God gave Moses and Aaron this this imagery, this blessing, it it calls back to Moses' direct experience with God in Exodus 34, where where Moses had a a literal, personal, dramatic presence of God. And and the Lord looked upon him. And do you remember what happened to Moses' face? His face shined. That's what happens to those that received the face shining of God, our faces shine. To those who receive the peace and shalom of God, we are peace shiners. So you gotta just ask yourself the question rooted in the gospel, has God's face shone upon me? Have I personally experienced the pleasure of God when he sees me? And then does my face go forward to shine peace and shalom to others. Psalm 40 tells us that peace is not about our surroundings, not about our circumstances. Peace is not about the right amount of money or time or system of government. Peace is not even about perfectly restored relationships or or neutralizing cultural threats. All of those battles, they're the Lord's. We're going to sing about this in a bit. Lay those burdens down. Lay that weight down. Peace is not circumstantial. It's a person. Surrender to him. Rely on him. Seek out the presence of God in a renewed commitment to his word. Don't allow this to just be some dusty foreign spiritual truths that you try to tap into. Delight yourself in this. Allow the word of God to be within your heart, as Psalm 40 says, as David says. 
cultivate peace by surrounding yourself with fellow believers, even through the summer and all the summer activities, prioritize Christian fellowship and generosity and giving and serving and watch how God takes all of that and gives you a profound sense of peace that transcends all circumstances. Let's take some time to pray together. I wait patiently for the Lord. The Lord is my strength. You have lifted me up out of the mire and set my feet upon a rock and put a new song in my heart. God, help us recognize that the peace that you promise us is not an absence of conflict. It's a peace and a strength that transcends any circumstances. When will I experience peace in that relationship? In that part of my life? When will I truly know and feel peace? It's when I submit and commit and wait patiently upon the Lord more and more as a posture of my heart. God, help us sing and proclaim that to you, the God of peace.